Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. January, what are you, um, hmm, not what are you up to this morning? Who are you up to this morning? Like, are you, are you rising and shining this morning, um, acknowledging that God is sovereign? Even on a day when it may feel like things are out of control, um, God is sovereign. There's nothing that's going to happen today that's going to surprise God. Uh, nothing that's going to catch him off guard. Um, and he is going to be prepared to deal with the circumstances of your life. And so live in that um, confidence, live in that strength, live in that peace, recognize that God's mercies are new every morning because in no small measure, we need them every morning. So good morning. So today is a historic day uh, in the United States of America. The Senate will proceed in earnest at 1 p.m. today, 1 p.m. Eastern today, in the impeachment trial of President Trump. Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is uh, trying to make it as speedy as possible. It is estimated that the days of the Senate trial could last something like 12 hours, maybe more. Um, I would look for pretty cranky senators today. Uh, Senators um, are not uh, encouraged to be making dinner plans, expected to be in the chamber until the late night, early morning hours, several days in a row. Uh, Chief Justice John Roberts of the Supreme Court will be presiding. There is a cell phone ban on the Senate floor, um, and we expect that to be enforced, even though it has not been enforced in recent years. It's expected it will be enforced during this impeachment trial. Um, Each day is going to begin with this proclamation. All persons are commanded to keep silence in pain of imprisonment. So that may sound archaic. It's also going to be, I think, challenging for those who are used to making um, guttural sounds uh, because silence includes words that are uh, or things that aren't even words, right? And so I want you to consider that. Could you sit for 12 or more hours under the command to keep silence under pain of imprisonment? I guess that's a, that's a pretty, that's a daunting challenge. Today's going to be, I think, all about procedural fights Democrats will try to focus the Senate uh, or force the Senate to allow new witnesses and new documents. And I would say that uh, after the Senate rule uh, takes a vote on the rules for the trial, which, you know, they they determine their own rules. So there you go. There will be um, opening arguments. Those I would I would anticipate will start tomorrow. Um, And then there's like 16 hours during which senators uh, can submit their questions to John Roberts and then there will be a Q&A period during which the senators will vote on whether or not to consider um, and debate witness subpoenas. So that is going to be a part of this ongoing conversation. Um, ultimately, the Senate will vote on whether or not to convict the president and remove him from office based on the um, uh, charges sent over by the House of Representatives. Um, all right. So first up this morning, I'm going to talk with Nick Pitts. He's a fellow at the Institute for Global Engagement 
He and I are going to talk about, uh, well, we're going to start off talking about a much-anticipated gun rights rally yesterday that attracted some 20,000 or 22,000 people in the heart of Virginia's capital of Richmond. Um, there was a very passionate but nonviolent protest of, um, uh, well, of gun control legislation or proposed gun control legislation. So that conversation up next with Nick Pitts. We'll be right back. Well, good morning, and Nick Pitts is joining us. He's a fellow at the Institute for Global Engagement. Welcome back, sir. Hey, Carmen. Great to be with you. What a time to be alive. Right? It's never dull. I mean, there's <laughs> always something to talk about. <laughs> no, not in the least bit. This is going to be a fun day. So let's let's start with this. The Second Amendment to the Constitution of the United States of America um, guarantees what? And why is why are restrictions on that being debated? And what happened yesterday in Richmond? How's that for teeing up a series of questions? <laughs> yeah, so where to begin? So we've got a significant group of people numbering around 22,000, is what it appears, um, uh, gathered in Richmond, Virginia uh, yesterday, as they have done for many years past, to be able to uh, fight for, advocate um, uh, their right to bear arms, which is a Second Amendment right here in the U.S. And um, many... Uh, much attention was turned uh, to this rally, just largely because the tragedy that happened a few years back where there was an individual, some neo-Nazis and some alt-right groups kind of took control um, and dominated that rally to the extent that even caused some fights and riots to break out. And tragically, one person lost their life in that. But what happened yesterday was... Um, which was what happened yesterday was what's traditionally been the case, which is just a group of Americans numbering up around 66 percent of Americans own a gun. There's around 310 million guns here in the U.S. Uh, they were just literally uh, wanting to advocate and exercise the right. And it's kind of similar to a Rorschach inkblot test is um, if you look at it from the media perspective, for some, the idea of having a gun present. Uh, creates danger, um, uh, threatens safety. Uh, as one uh, Virginia State Director for Advocacy for Gun Control, but it causing mass hysteria in the streets just by the mere presence of guns. But for other people, um, and I would say largely for those of us here in Texas, the presence of a gun, it doesn't threaten safety, but ensures safety. It, it moves forward to protect that safety. And so you just have two radically different visions, but very much happening at this very same event um, yesterday in Richmond. Nick, I don't know about you, but anytime I have this conversation, um, you can almost immediately know whether or not you are talking with someone who owns a gun or someone who does not own a gun. I mean, yeah. that does seem to be the uh, the division on this uh, or in this conversation. And yet there are some, there are at least some people who do not own guns who appreciate that others um, may and must. And I think that's part of this conversation. Um, there's a there's a there's the idea out there that if no civilians owned guns, then the world would be a safer place. But criminals yeah. would very likely still own guns um, mm -hmm. and disarming the American populace at this point in time in terms of uh, private gun ownership seems 
seems totally unrealistic and uh, and certainly unlikely to me. So I don't want people to um, uh, to rush to the idea that uh, a restriction on gun ownership in one state suddenly means that you know the government is coming for everyone's guns. Like that. Let's not you know let's not overstate things. But it is an interesting. Um, move, particularly in the state of Virginia, that they would be moving in the direction of of greater gun control. Yeah, you, you know, this is Governor Northam has uh, he's he's been pretty. Um, I guess just be, being very blunt, I mean, he's been pretty progressive on his agenda that he has. He has a Clean Economy Act that he's pushing for right now. That's call, uh, calling for Virginia to essentially eradicate uh, their carbon emissions footprint by 2050, largely partially relying on nuclear energy at around 22 percent of their uh, uh, energy needs, and then 78% being wind and solar. But then also with gun control, he really is advocating for that. But I, Carmen, I think you hit it right on the head. Uh, this is this is such a divisive topic for so many people. But interestingly enough, though, if you look at the very heart of it, everybody wants the same thing. Everybody wants to ensure the safety of of, of the entirety. Everybody wants safety, and there's just very different ways as to how to get safety. Um, for some, uh, they and this is even a disagreement among Christians. For some, that Jesus would say that we need to turn the other cheek, we need to lay down the sword. Um, there's a just there is a very there's a scriptural argument for just because you have the right doesn't mean you need to exercise the right. That's what we saw with Jesus do, right? Um, that one side would say that would call for gun control, but the other side would say, well, I've got to protect my family and protect those that I'm to care for. Uh, out of First Timothy five, I need to dr- pick up the sword. It says in Luke twenty two, and there's another side of the debate that would say that I've got to I've got to keep my gun because God has given me power and He's given me responsibility to be able to care for those that are close to me and and to love my neighbor is one of the ways that I do that. And so there's just this really radical divide. But at the, at the very heart of it, though, is both parties want the same, but unfortunately, each side typically tends to demonize the other and thinks they don't want that safety component, which is where I think the problems really do begin to multiply. All right, I'm having a conversation with Nick Pitts. He's a fellow at the Institute for Global Engagement. When we come back, he and I are going to talk, um, well, the flavor of the day, which uh, our producer, Paul Perot, um, highlights <laughs> the word peach and the word mint in the word impeachment. So we're going to talk a little bit about peaches and mint or what's happening in D.C. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Continuing my conversation with Nick Pitts. He's a fellow at the Institute for Global Engagement. You can find him on Twitter at JNickPitts. All right, let's talk about the flavor of the day, affectionately known as impeachment. I don't know how I feel about peaches and mint together. I don't, uh, these, these flavors, this is not a flavor combo I'm interested in. It seems like it's a spring flavor more than anything. And right now we've got about 30 degrees, which I know uh, your your <laughs> listeners in Minnesota are laughing at me <laughs> for having to endure 30 degree weather. But it is what it is down here in Texas. And it's not necessarily the idea of spring kind of appeals to us right now. That's exactly right. All right. So we are headed into, um, uh, well, the Senate trial. And um, let's talk a little bit about Trump's approval rating, because this is a really, I think, interesting, wide ranging topic. And I know you kind of like the statistics of, yeah. of the thing. So let's talk a little bit about um, the president's approval uh, polling ratings um, right now. 
Yeah, he is short up. We'll just name him for what it is. Looking at his party, he is he has got a vice grip like power and dominance over his own party. But what's really fascinating is when you actually look at the the numbers relative to what's happening with the impeachment and what Americans think should happen with impeachment. Well, one side is going to point to Gallup polling, which indicates that 51 percent of Americans say that the president should not be convicted and should not be removed from office. The CNN poll that was released last night indicates that 51 percent of Americans do believe that he should be removed from office and should be convicted of this particular charge. Well, what's interesting about that and what every pastor listening knows or any list or uh, any leader that's listening knows is no per no person wants to move with barely a majority <laughs> like that is, those are not good numbers. It's within the margin of error. So this really is a divisive has centrally split the country right now as to what they think should happen next. Uh, he made um, he made some traction with farmers. Um uh, right. I mean, related to yeah. and, and this and this is a part of this. Right. Because all politics are ultimately local. So ultimately, mm, I care yeah. more about what is happening that actually affects my day to day life, the education of my kids or my access to health care or my right. And all politics is local. And so for listeners right now who um, you know work anywhere in in any relationship to farming, this has been a good week because we signed a trade deal with China. Um, well, yeah. And the and USMCA, right? Canada yeah. and Mexico. So, um, so when we talk about all politics being local, and we talk about how people are feeling about the president, it's really not always about one thing that um, someone says he did or may have done, or we may all agree he did. But whether or not that rises to the level of something for which the individual should be impeached, especially when the politics of it are working out for me at home. Yeah, the economy's booming right now. There's no denying that we are in a, I mean, among millennials, which is my constituency, you have got concepts that are becoming known as ghosting that are taking place within the workplace right now. The job market is so hot. You have individuals that are getting hired for jobs and not showing up to jobs because they can go to another, they can get more money at another firm literally within, within that period of time. I mean, it's just unbelievable how hot the economy is. So that's what makes me think, Yes, there's economy wall, obviously play a part of it. But what we know from Bloom's taxonomy, which is this concept from the 50s, uh, Bloom's taxonomy would say that once I have my shelter needs and once those basic needs have been met, it allows me to start thinking through self-actualization, thinking through self-defining self-care is what is phrases that you continue to hear right now. And when those basic needs are met, people are able to think about other things that aren't necessarily basic, but are those desires, which are everything from climate change, which are everything from this gender, uh, uh, gender inequality, um, or not gender inequality, rather, but wealth inequality. You begin to think about some of these higher issues. And that's where I think we're going to start to see a little bit more traction in the coming days. Because, again, those basic needs have already been met. How can we begin to think through some of those luxury needs that we have? When we think about um, needs, for me, you know, the not only the right to believe, I don't think yeah, anybody can yeah. actually take away my right to believe. Like that's mm -hmm. that's pretty yeah. basic and standard. But the liberty that I enjoy in the United States of America to express my beliefs here on air, mm -hmm. pretty much anywhere I go, um, uh, that's that is unique to the United States of America. It's yeah. um, and it's precious to us. Uh, talk a little bit about you. I know you and I both read this um, this article um, on Religion News Service about this ongoing conversation. I will admit to you um, that this this conversation being held publicly is interesting to me because it happens privately a lot. Um, do 
do parents now, in, in the view of a secular world, do parents have the right to educate their children in their own faith? Yeah, that's, <clears throat> that's a conversation that's been going on for uh, a little over 100 years. I mean, you can go all the way back to Rousseau that had an idea that, I mean, uh, really has its roots in Rousseau, the idea that the government, a central, a central governing authority would be the one to raise your children. And out of that idea, um, uh, that's why you see so much of an emphasis that's been placed upon government schools, upon schooling, and then even some of the modern day manifestations of this being everything from uh, pre-K to even uh, spending more time in schooling as well, at least a remnant of it. I'm not saying the entirety of it. And so you do see this piece of individuals that largely want the government, that largely want these third parties outside of parents to be the ones to raise and indoctrinate your kids. Whereas from a Christian understanding, we would believe it to be true that parents are ultimately the ones that bear the responsibility to do this. But again, if I'm if I'm trying to look at the the the, the best other the other side of the argument, it's recognizing that we do have a problem here in the U.S. Uh, in that 41 percent of children that are born today are born into unwed families. 41 percent, Carmen, of the children that are born today. If we isolate that into racial racial demographics. That number jumps up to 70, over 70 percent for African-American children that are born today are born into unwed families. That is not ideal from a Christian perspective, which would argue for a mother and a father raising a child in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And so as a result of that, you largely are starting to see policies and ideas that are put out there that is trying to correct this, this, this problem that we have, which is unwed families. But from a Christian perspective, we would say that no, that the mother and the father should bear that responsibility. And not only that, that responsibility, but they have the privilege to get to your point, to be able to raise the child and, and to teach the child the way so that they might not depart from them when they're old. So um, the, the article really, and I, I encourage people to really consider this conversation. Where, where do you believe the right to parent comes from? And how far does your right to parent extend in terms of what you teach your child? Because what is being argued um, by those who would I, w- I would describe as very progressive in terms of their parenting and very yeah. secular in terms of their understanding of, of the things of the faith, um, what they are arguing is that every, every person, obviously children included here, have the right to freely uh, determine and then exercise their own religion, their own, you know, whether, whether or not to believe anything, and if so, what to believe, um, without really interference or guidance, per se, from their biological parents or the people who are raising them. And so when I think about this, uh, Nick, I- I'll tell you, this is, this is destructive at a, at a depth and a level mm-hmm. that— um, that's worthy of our attention because this isn't just the state saying, hey, we're the ones that are going to educate your kids. You don't have a right to educate your kids. This is now um, people out in the in the populace. This, this isn't yeah. a government effort, by the way. This is people in the populace saying you don't have the right to, quote unquote, indoctrinate your child into a particular faith. Like that it's your moral responsibility to actually not guide them in a particular direction. That just seems like a total abandonment of the responsibility of parenting. Yeah, and to a certain degree, it's it's they're doing the very same thing they don't want uh, Christian parents to do, right? They're saying that sure. we don't want you to, we don't want you to uh, indoctrinate, we don't want you to educate your child in the way of the faith. We want you to indoctrinate your child in the way of our faith, which is to have no faith. 
um, uh, and so and to build skepticism within to their very being, which again is it is just the it's a it's the same side of the uh, it's a different side of the same coin that they're arguing for right now that I would argue and I think uh, research would argue it would be detrimental to the well-being not only of families but also to children and entirely to the communities as well in which they'll live. Yeah, so I think we'll just I will ask a a question, a wide open question here to our listeners. I mean, do you perceive yourself as a parent to not only have the right but the responsibility to transmit faith and values uh, to the next generation? Do you have a right to um, influence the religious allegiance of your child? Now, my guess is most people uh, are verbally answering us right now with a with a resounding yes. All right, Nick Pitts and I have to leave our conversation. Right there. Thank you so much, Nick, for joining us today. You guys can find Nick on Twitter at JNickPitts. Uh, next up, a little bit from Greg Laurie. We'll be right back. So you may have uh, heard lots of headlines lately related to immigration and refugees. There's some things going on globally, but there are some particular things uh, here in the United States of interest to each of us and all of us when we think of our neighbors who um, are from foreign lands uh, and who now reside here, but also about those who desire to come, those who are gathered at our southern border um, and those who will be suffering in coming days by things that the cause of things that we don't even yet know, but who may want to. Um, escape those things around the world and settle even for a period of time, as refugees do, um, in a new land. So those conversations are conversations I like to have with Matthew Sorens from World Relief. And so he's going to be here in just a moment to share with us some updates uh, about refugees and immigration. And so that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. So what are you doing in the middle of the summer? Would love it if you would consider joining me uh, at the Northwestern Christian Writers Conference. That's actually the website as well, NorthwesternChristianWritersConference.com. July 24th and 25th, I will be there. I would love for you to join us. Tickets are on sale now. You get a 20% registration discount if you uh, if you tell us you're coming in the month of January. Uh, This is an opportunity for professionals and those who are not yet published, who are looking to improve their writing craft and learn more about the process of being published. It's a great opportunity to network with fellow writers. And oh, it says industry professionals on my little note here. Um, There are lots of industry professionals. And then there are people like me. Uh, And I would describe myself as a person who loves to write. But, you know, even though I'm a published author, I don't necessarily understand everything. And there's certainly lots of people I have not yet met. And so there you go. Great opportunity to get together with me and others at the Northwestern Christian Writers Conference. That's the website, NorthwesternChristianWritersConference.com. Love it if you join us. We'll be right back. A man struggling with terminal cancer once told me, I try not to stand too long on the mountain and I don't sit too long in the valley. I live one day at a time and try to keep my attitude somewhere near the middle. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. In a situation that was totally out of control, this man trusted God for one day at a time. Perhaps you're in a situation where things are dark as well. It may not be cancer, but the anger, disrespect, and tension at home has worn you down. My hope is that this quick word from a cancer patient will be a reminder to you. Today, 
Live just one day at a time. Stay near the middle and know that in the midst of the chaos at home, God is still in control. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Matthew Sorens is the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization at World Relief. He's also the National Coordinator for the Evangelical Immigration Table and the co-author of Welcoming the Stranger Seeking Refuge. He tweets at Matthew Sorens. Matthew, welcome back. Yeah, glad to be back. You um, you have been busy this week. I know you're busy every week, but um, I know that just a few days ago you were on CBN News for Faith Nation Today. And you were explaining about um, the temporary court injunction and the future of refugee resettlement. I would love if you would share that with our audience as well. Sure. So to kind of go back a little ways, this uh, there was an executive order that was uh, signed last fall that basically for the first time said that for refugee resettlement to continue in any particular state and uh, locality, the both the governor and then the um, county executive or its equivalent would have to affirmatively consent to ongoing refugee resettlement. So basically we had a, as a refugee resettlement organization that's worked with the state department um, for several decades now, we had kind of a scramble where we needed to get governors to send a letter to the U S department uh, secretary of state indicating that they wanted to continue to receive refugees um, and the, the good news from my perspective is more than 40 governors signed those letters in a fairly short time period. Um, but there was a few holdouts uh, where we weren't sure, at least one state in Texas where the governor indicated he did not want to continue receiving refugees. And that was set to um, – we're hitting some deadlines pretty quickly. And then last week a judge in Maryland ruled that actually the underlying executive order – um, was, uh, well, the judge, Judge Massetti, put a temporary injunction on it. So it's not a final decision on the constitutionality or legality of that executive order. But in the interim, the judge ruled that it is sufficiently likely that it will be struck down, that that he was putting a, a block on implementing the executive order. Um, based on a number of both constitutional reasons and looking at the, actually the language of the federal law that governs refugee resettlement, the Refugee Act, and some of the amendments to that. So in, in an effort to uh, draw a, a fairly distinct line between refugees and other kinds of immigrants, I, I want to stick with the refugee conversation um, on this side of the break. And then after the break, I want to talk about um, maybe folks at the southern border and, and your experiences there this week as well. So, so remind us again, because when we use the term refugee – that is a, that is a very different and distinct category of people than just a person who, for let's say economic reasons, wants to come to the United States of America. Remind us who the yeah. refugees are. Yeah, I think I think it really is important. I think a lot of people do get confused. Even um, Texas Governor Abbott, in his letter rejecting refugee resettlement, alluded to situations at the border, but that's actually a totally separate situation because um, refugees. Uh, are people who have been identified by the U.S. government abroad, um, sometimes based on a referral from the United Nations, sometimes from just our embassies 
investigation, but they meet a specific legal definition of someone who is outside of their country of origin. They've fled their country specifically because of a well-founded fear of persecution on account of their race, their religion, their political opinion, their national origin, or their social group. Only one of those reasons. Yeah. And in fact, one of the more common reasons that people are refugees, at least among those that we've resettled at World Relief, is because of their religion. And often, and more often than not, that's actually Christianity. Um, the, the most common group of refugees that we've resettled in the last decade are from Burma or Myanmar in Southeast Asia. And about 70% of the folks from Burma who've been resettled are Christians. And it's uh, their Christian faith, often they're Baptists, sometimes Anglicans. That is actually the root of why they're, or one of the roots of why they're being persecuted by the Burmese government, um, which is a very brutal authoritarian regime that you know, most of us have are, have heard something about as a not a very good government. So those folks are selected abroad. <coughs> Excuse me. It's a very small select share of all refugees in the world that get selected for resettlement to the United States. Last year, it was one-tenth of one percent, um, roughly, of the world's refugees that were selected for resettlement. And then they're invited by the U.S. State Department um, to fly to the United States. They're met at the airport by a group like World Relief or one of our partners or another resettlement agencies like the Catholic Church or there's a Lutheran group. And they, um, you know, we partner with churches to pick those people up the airport and help them get on their feet in, in, this, in this country. So it's um, a very orderly process. It's a very there's a very thorough vetting involved before anyone is invited to come to the United States, uh, and there's a great record of that, both in terms of security. There's not been a death from a terrorist attack from anyone who came to the U.S. as a refugee since the Refugee Act of 1980, and that's more than three million refugees that have come since that time. And then economically as well, they've played a really key role in filling um, some gaps in our in our labor market, especially at a time of very low unemployment rates. All right. So, Matthew, I think that um, helping people, uh, reminding us of the difference, um, but then also, you know, sort of breaking our heart um, about what is happening in the lives of people in Central America and South America um, and, and other places around the world that motivates the desire to have a better life, not only for yourself, but for the next generation. And that seems to me to be the motivation of most immigrants. They want to move to a place that they will not only have greater freedoms, but genuinely a better life. It's why most of our ancestors came here to the United States in the first place. So I'd like to pivot after the break and have a conversation about what's happening at the southern border. We have not talked about it here on air um, for for some time. You and I have not had an oppor- opportunity to visit about this in the new year. Um, and so we just love, and I know you have been in Juarez. I know that you have been in Tijuana just in recent days. We'd love an update um, from you about your observations at the southern border. So that conversation up next with Matthew Sorens from World Relief and the uh, Evangelical uh, Immigration Roundtable. We'll be right back. Okay, I might have uh, rounded the evangelical immigration table before the break. Uh, Matthew Sorens is the national coordinator for the evangelical immigration table, which may or may not be round. Um, And he's also the U.S. director of church mobilization for World Relief. Uh, He has been here um, on the program before. We have talked about his book co-authored with Jenny Yang. It's Welcoming the Stranger, Seeking Refuge. Um, Excellent, excellent work, Matthew. Uh, Is the table round most times? Um, it, you know, it's a metaphorical table, but I, I envision it being around. 
<laughs> I envision it as round. Okay, so we're we are going to move from a conversation about refugees and intentionally have a different conversation. And this one is about people who seek to immigrate for a variety of other reasons. Um, people who do not qualify or have not been identified internationally as refugees. They may actually be seeking to leave the similar kinds of situations that refugees qualify for, um, but they're not acknowledged, they're not recognized as refugees, so they're not in that process. Tell us what is happening by your observation at the southern border. Just give us an update. I know you've been there. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm pretty much on the border right now in in, um, El Paso, Texas. I was in Juarez yesterday, and last week I was in Tijuana, so on the other sort of western end of the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, there's, uh, you know, there's for many months now, since last June, there's been what's called the Migrant Protection Protocols or Remain in Mexico. That's conf- a bunch of acronyms, but basically what that means is under U.S. law, uh, there's a process to request asylum. And asylum is different than refugee resettlement because you're not identified outside of the United States, but it's when someone can reach the United States, whether on an airplane, if you're lucky enough to get a tourist visa, or in this case, walking up to the border, and you say to the U.S. government, I'm here to request asylum. I want to be able to stay and be protected because I'm fleeing a well-founded fear of persecution for one of these reasons allowed under the law. Um, and there, are, of course, there are also people who try to get to the border and try to sneak into the country. They don't even claim to meet that, you know, that standard of fleeing persecution. They're just trying to get into the country to get a job. But what's most common in the last few years is not people trying to sneak in. It's people trying to request asylum. Um, So the Remain in Mexico process basically says instead of waiting for your court date for asylum in the United States, either in a detention center or living with your extended family taking care of you with an ankle bracelet around your ankle to make sure you show up for court, now the vast majority of people, basically anyone Spanish-speaking, is being returned, except for Mexicans, I should say. So anyone from Central America or South America or the Caribbean is being returned to Mexico to wait. So yesterday I visited a a Christian ministry that runs a shelter there in Juarez that has about 100 or so people living there, many of them for many months. I talked to one Cuban man um, who was a political dissident in Cuba that will get you in trouble in Cuba, as most most of us are aware. Um, And he got to Juarez last May, and he is currently waiting on a court date in uh, next October. Um, in so he's just waiting to be able to go over and make his case for asylum, and he's getting a little bit discouraged. Um, he goes to court every few months for next hearing, but his next one's not till October. He said recently he was detained for about 15 days in the U.S. in a this facility they called the Ielera, which in Spanish is basically the ice box. It's just it's kind of a common colloquial name for the detention facility along the border where people wait to go to their court, and it's kept very cold. Um, so it has kind of a, a you know a bad reputation among people who've had to be there, especially for as long as two weeks. But that's the situation. Um, there's a diverse group of people, uh, mostly from Central America, uh, actually an increasing number of Cubans as well, who've made their way um, to Mexico trying to seek asylum in the U.S. Some Venezuelans also. And World Relief has had clients who, whom we've represented in court from from Venezuela also. But because of the Remain in Mexico process, they're basically just amassed along the border. And Juarez is one of the safer places where people are, which if you know anything of the reputation of Juarez, that might sound kind of crazy. But um, And Tijuana also, safer than some of the other places. But elsewhere along the border, 
are, I mean, there's parts of the U.S.-Mexico border where on the Mexican side of the border, the U.S. State Department um, forbids U.S. governmental personnel from traveling. Um, it's too dangerous. There's kidnapping and trafficking. And a ton of these people are children. I mean, I just saw tons of kids running around in a playground yesterday. And they're kids. They're running around. They're laughing and playing with each other and licking lollipops. And, you know, they're they're just children. They remind me a lot of my kids. Um, but they're sometimes in a really precarious situation where it's a real risk of trafficking. Uh, I was actually really impressed how the state government of Chihuahua here, on the Mexican side is, I'd say, doing a better job than any other Mexican state that I've seen or heard of in trying to coordinate the situation. But, you know, it's a lot of resources for a, a Mexican state that doesn't necessarily have a ton of resources as they're trying to help coordinate a network of churches and other nonprofits running shelters. So it's it's a challenging situation, to be sure. And one of the biggest challenges is it's uh, almost impossible to get legal counsel. So the odds of winning your asylum case goes down dramatically when you can't access a, a lawyer. And there's just not a lot of U.S. lawyers who are able to travel into Mexico. And it would relief we do a little bit of that in Tijuana, but very limited. I mean, we, we don't have the capacity to represent thousands and thousands of people in their cases. So we're we're all reading um, today, Matthew. Uh, you know, sort of the the effect. Um, I would call it like the ripple or the wave effect of uh, of the Remain in Mexico policy. It means that on Mexico's southern border with Guatemala, um, there are very very significant not only tensions but very now real challenges. There's thousands of Central American migrants who forded the uh, the waters of uh, of the river at the southern border of Mexico in an attempt to enter Mexico, you know, in an attempt then ultimately to uh, to arrive at the U.S. border. Um, so we are beginning to now see um, the the very great challenge that, you know, that Mexico as sort of the buffer between the United States and some of these Central American countries uh, from which these immigrants are seeking to um, seeking to arrive here and make their asylum claims. So uh, this is a growing crisis. This is not getting this is not getting smaller. This is getting bigger. Yeah. And I mean, what you're seeing on multiple levels is the United States has basically um, put a lot of this on the Mexico. Um, and we did so essentially by threatening tariffs of 25% on all their products, which um, would have been very harmful to the U.S. economy, but would have wrecked the Mexican economy. So the Mexican government has basically agreed. Previously, the Mexican, com- you know, I've had talked to lots of Central American immigrants who didn't have a very good experience getting through Mexico. But the government of Mexico basically didn't see migration as their problem. If they happened to be in between where people were from and where they wanted to reach the United States, they kind of just let them pass through. But they weren't going to expend tons of their governmental resources to stop them. Now they are. Um, They're expending a lot of resources, uh, both on the northern border, to basically keep people in place while they wait for asylum in the U.S. And then also they're making it very difficult for most people to even cross in at the southern border from Guatemala. Um, and, you know, largely effectively, I think, the numbers of people reaching the northern border are, are way down. And again, that's I understand that that's the goal of, of the U.S. government, but the U.S. government also has these laws that offer asylum to those with a well-founded fear of persecution. And it feels to me like we've solved the problem in the minds of some people without actually solving the underlying problem that there are people who, if they return to their country, could be killed. And, and I've met people who've had loved ones killed by gangs, killed by corrupt governments. 
Um, so we're not really actually solving the human dignity problem. We're solving the problem with that puts this, you know, as an issue for the United States on a regular basis. Matt, where's the one um, one place that folks can go if they want to get, you know, the best updated information on these issues? Where do you want? Where's the one place you want to send them online? Um, I guess I'd say worldrelief.org. We've been trying to do stories on our on our website about <clears throat> some of the work, not only that we do, but I mean, the work I'm witnessing here in El Paso is partner organizations um, that are just doing great work, partnering with local churches to to care. So. I'd head there, and then on Twitter, I try to keep up to date with some stories as well at Matthew Sorms. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, we will we will touch base with you again. We appreciate Thank you being here. Yeah, absolutely. We'll be right back. So Paul Perot and I were just talking off mic. Um, it's it's cold today, and so it's possible that you are being a cranky Yankee today. And we just want you to um, to know that the heart of the Christian can always be warm, even when it, the weather outside is cold. So let's be people who are walking our faith out in the world today in ways that lighten and brighten and encourage. Did you want to say something, Paul? Oh, no, no. I thought he wanted to chime in there for a moment. So, um, so you know, the climate, the climate is affected by you. Like, right? Go, so go out there and and influence whatever local uh, region you're in with the warmth of the gospel. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.